We are continuing our series today on the tongue. And by the way, thank you, Joby, Candace, for putting coffee together. There is coffee over here. So if you're in the need of a little jolt there, uh, Candace made sure there were plenty of coffee in that filter when the water ran through. So anytime, please get up and get a cup of coffee. So thank you, Joby and Candace, for doing that. Okay, well, we're going to continue in our, our series here on truths about uh, truths about my tongue. And you'll recall in lesson one last week, we looked at my terrible tongue. What a title for a lesson, right? To get a series started and get you all pumped up. My terrible tongue. And when we looked at James, we're like, oh yeah, I do have a terrible tongue. When we looked at James's expose on our speech, on our communication from James chapter three, and you could turn back there if you want. We're not going to be spending much time there. I'm just going to do a quick review of James 3, 1 through 12, and the points that we learned last week. And what we looked at were five warnings about the terrors of my tongue. You know, you might be wondering, why are we looking at the tongue? Why are we talking about speech? These are just words, right? I mean, isn't God more concerned about our conduct? Isn't he more concerned about my thought life? Isn't he more concerned about just me learning the word? And those are all really important things. But when you look at James, God puts a great priority on our speech, on our words. And, and the very things we tend to minimize are words. They're just words. James highlights and puts great emphasis on. This is not an area to ignore. And if you remember James chapter 3, verse 1, he started with teachers. Not many of you should become teachers. In other words, not all words are created equal. The words that come out the mouth of a teacher speaking on behalf of God are very important. In fact, it says in James chapter 3, verse 1, that they will be judged with greater strictness. There's a priority given to those here who speak on behalf of God. Every careless word will be judged, right? So what we're seeing here is we, you know, we have to be careful not self-appointing ourselves in positions of influence or platforms of influence that speak on God's behalf. And yet, we didn't talk about this last week, I got thinking about this in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. You know, the, the writer of Hebrews, uh, speaking to those uh, believers, said, For though by this time you ought to be teachers. It's, it's not that there shouldn't be teachers. We need teachers. We're commanded to have teaching. We're, we're commanded to have the clear proclamation of the word. And the expectation in, in Hebrews is that some of those in the faith should have been mature enough by then to be teachers. And that's the idea here. Same idea as James. Be ready to teach. For those of you that have the gift of teaching, that needs to be brought out, that needs to be trained, you need to be, immerse yourself in the local church, that you may be equipped to teach others. But don't circumvent that. Don't undermine that. Don't shortcut that. So take care in this area because words are important and God judges our words. And secondly, another warning about the terrors of my tongue was don't underestimate the powerful influence of your little tongue. Remember, we looked at the, James talks about the, the bit that's, that's in the, the, the horse's mouth and how just a small little bit can control a horse. I don't know if you've ridden a horse before. There could be great humor in watching someone on a horse that doesn't know the power of that bit and the, 
the bridle there, right, to control the horse. And I've seen people go off into the pasture wildly riding this horse, not realizing just a little tug will control that massive animal. Or the little rudder on a ship, as James says. You can control a massive ship by just slowly turning the wheel. You know, old man, yellow coat, you know how it goes in Maine. He can just go, do, 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 do. And, and he can just control that massive ship. And what's the idea here? That little tongue in your mouth has unbelievable influence. It has massive influence. Words are important. In fact, he says later there that don't miscalculate your tongue's ability to cause great harm. It's a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. It's set on fire by hell, he says. It's no small thing. Great destruction can be created by the tongue. Now, we know great good can be created there through the tongue and our words, and we'll be getting to that eventually. But James, James is really focusing on its ability to cause great harm, and he uses fire, its destructiveness. But when we think about the great influence of the tongue, it says there that this little rudder that could control an entire ship or the small bit in the mouth of the horse that can control this massive animal. James, James said that, hey, you know, we, if you do not stumble in what you say, you are able to bridle or control the whole body. In other words, as you learn and practice godly speech, you'll invariably learn and practice how to live a godly life. They go hand in hand. Someone that has learned God's way and how to discipline their speech have a disciplined Christian life. Those of us that have uncontrolled tongues or to the extent we have uncontrolled speech speaks to our lack of maturity in our Christian life. We can't say we're mature and swear like a sailor, right? We can't say we're growing in the Christian life if we're not growing in the way we talk. So if gossip and lying and flattery, deception, the many sins of the tongue are evident in your life, it's evidence of the need to mature in various areas of Christian life. We'll be talking about that a little bit today. Boy, James has continued in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3, my tongue is humanly untamable. As we perform the creation mandate and subdue creation, we, it says there we can tame any animal, creature on earth. Man is able to do that. And yet we eat humble pie because we can't control our little tongue. Ouch. And then he finally said, my tongue's hypocrisy highlights its brokenness, right? Out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing, and James says this should not be so. Well, there's great hope, okay, as we look at what seems so hopeless in James 3, that through the power of the gospel, the untamable tongue can be tamed. The heart can be redeemed. We can pronounce good things in honor of our Lord and Savior and mature in the Christian walk. And we'll look at that today by getting to the heart of my speech. Lesson two in our series, getting to the heart of my speech. The tongue is connected to the heart. Now, if you know, is it called physiology? I'm looking to a med student. Am I looking, my physiology? Is the tongue connected to the heart physiologically? It's not, is it? 
There's nothing about it where it's connected. And yet spiritually, it's quite connected, okay? <laughs> I had the med students saying, no, we didn't learn it that way. <laughs> nada, nada, you can tell I'm an engineer. It's not connected, okay? Thank you for the confirmation. Getting to the heart of my speech, but spiritually speaking, it's directly connected. And we're going to look at that today. So here's our key thought for today. My words and actions are an expression of my efforts to fulfill the desires of my heart. My words and actions are an expression of my efforts to fulfill the desires of my heart. In other words, what you say or do on the outside is a product of what is ruling on the inside. The Bible defines an inseparable tie between our our outward words, I'm emphasizing words because that's our series on the speech, but it's also our actions. But the Bible defines an inseparable tie between our words and our inward heart. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. We'll start here, we'll look at a few different passages. We'll be back in James again, even though this isn't a study on James, but there's some great passages on this area. But let's turn to some words of Christ himself in Matthew chapter 12, and we'll look at verses 33 through 37 here. You'll recognize this passage when you read it. You'll recognize similar passages in the, in the Gospels. But look at what Christ says. He says in verse 33, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, speaking to the Pharisees here, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So in in the setting here, Jesus had just performed a miraculous healing. The recipient of that healing is identifying Jesus as the Messiah. And the Pharisees publicly attribute Jesus' power to do these miraculous things. They, They attribute that power to Satan himself, and they You remember they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And this, after all the evidences that Christ gave of his deity, of his him being the Son of God, um, the Jewish leaders just outright reject Christ. And what do they do when they do that? They reveal the true state of their inward hearts, right? They were in need of radical conversion. And you could see that in what they said, and and Jesus calls them out. I mean, these are the Pharisees. These are the, you know, if if you were looking for spiritual people, what were understood to be the religious, the spiritual people, was the Pharisees. You didn't look at them and say, oh, you're a Pharisee, you're a hypocrite. Jesus called them out for that, but not the people of the day. They were were considered the experts. They were the experts of the law. They knew right from wrong. They They could parse out everything, and of course, they created many more laws well beyond the scriptures. And Jesus calls him out for all this. And here comes the Son of God, the, the, you know, the very 
you know, part of the triune God coming down in the flesh, and he's outright rejected. Blasphemy, actually attributing his power in his miracles to the power of Satan himself. And right away you could say, well, it doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. You might be all polished up, but that heart, it will reveal itself, the stony heart, the unredeemed heart in what is said. And he says here, every careless word will be judged. It's, it's exhibit A, if you will, in Jesus' indictment. Uh, our oldest son, Ryan, is a, is a lawyer in Ohio, and he if he has a, a case and he has a, a statement to make, he'll give exhibits. Exhibit A, here we go. Here's the evidence. And the exhibit A with Christ before the Pharisees is, look what proceeds out of your mouth. It comes from the heart. And he talks there about uh, out of the abundance of the heart of the mouth speaks, and a tree is known by its fruit. Show you, you know, from time to time, I show you pictures of my grandchildren. This is our dear Maggie. We're going to be seeing her this week, uh, one of our granddaughters in Ohio. We went out apple picking uh, in one of the seasons there in Ohio. And you can see she's quite excited to have this large apple. It looks like the size of a watermelon in her hands there. But uh, it was good picking that day for the trees that were bearing fruit. And we can tell which trees to pick from because there was fruit. My dear wife, Christy, loves Honeycrisp apples. Anyone else like Honeycrisp apples? It's the best, in my humble opinion. There were no Honeycrisp apples that day. And Christy was, and I, we're both disappointed. We went to those trees, and man, there was no fruit. Something's wrong with that tree. We talked to the Orchard guys, oh, there's plenty of other good fruit. Oh, we wanted Honeycrisp. Well, there's something wrong with those trees. I said, yeah, we know. <laughs> there's no fruit there. Where, where are the apples? We want Honeycrisp. That's why we came here. Uh, so we got apples that you could bake, you know, pies with, which isn't a bad thing. Um, I love pie, too. Uh, but you could tell the good trees from the bad by their fruit. It was obvious, right? Jesus' point here is there's a direct correlation between the content of our speech and the condition of your heart. Here's the point. Don't ignore what proceeds from your lips. It's ironic. We will actually say, Jesus only cares about my heart, not what I say. Have you ever thought that before? Yeah, I say that, but that's not my heart. That's not what I really mean. That's not... That's not where I'm coming from. And Jesus says, no, what you said came from that heart. We let ourselves off the hook. We let it go by. We let it pass through like it doesn't matter. And Jesus says words do matter. They reveal something deeper. It's why they matter. It's revealing something in your heart. Obviously, good things coming from your mouth are revealing something good in the heart. We're focusing here on these sinful things, as the Pharisees were experts at, what proceeded from their heart came out in their mouth. The monitor of your heart is your speech. Look at, and in your actions, look at what comes out, and you'll know what's coming from the heart. Let's think of several points here in some, t some takeaways here in Matthew 12, all right? <coughs> Let's look at one takeaway. 
God cares about my words and speech. Again, you're looking at this topic of speech. We're tempted to think these are just words. Why all the big fuss? Aren't we just being legalistic here? And God says, no, he cares about our talk, your communication, your words. And as he said there, we'll give an account of them to God himself. Verse 36, in the day of judgment, you will give an account for every careless word. Second point, second takeaway, my tongue displays the conditions of my heart. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, in verse 34. The tongue is the spokesperson of our depravity. The evil in our heart, and as we get down to desires later, the desires of our heart, sinful desires, come out in unrighteous speech. Our unrighteous speech is like the snitch on our heart, right? If you guys watched Recess growing up, that cartoon, anybody, cartoon people? There should be, all right, a few of you, because you're about my kid's age, a little younger. But, uh, you know, there was, um, uh, what was the snitch's name? Austin, help me. Randall, that's it, Randall. He would always go to Miss Finster. Uh, <laughs> You know, and he would snitch everybody uh, out on the playground for things he didn't feel were right or Miss Finster would want to know about. So, uh, you know, our, uh, our, uh, our, our, our tongues are like little randals going around snitching on our heart, right? And everything that's wrong with it. Um, unrighteous speech just gives away the sick condition of what's inside. So we can't take our words lightly because God takes them seriously. I mean, look at this passage here in James 1.26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Look, look at the importance here. Not be able to rein in, not being able to control the tongue evidences that even though we might be living a religious life, we have the trappings, we go to church, we're, we got, we're, we're dressing our Sunday best, we say and do these kind of things, but we don't bridle our tongue, what do you do? You're actually deceiving your heart. And what we do is worthless. Here's the brutal reality that James always comes, comes back to. He's like, you're playing a game. You're going about living life and God's giving you evidences of problems inside, and you're not addressing it. You're deceiving yourself, like everything's okay. You think of warnings in Scripture that are pretty direct, like, wow, there'll be many that, that, that day that will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that? And he says, oh, I never knew you. And it just, the, the religiosity is just blown away, the outside, polished life and yet having an unbridled tongue, uncontrolled speech, speaks to a religion that's worthless. In other words, there should be evidences of change and transformation, and that must include the tongue for all those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. It must include our tongue. So again, underlying the importance of these areas here in, the, in our speech. And finally, uh, the, th the third takeaway to change my speech, I must address my heart. I must address my heart. Do you feel that need to change your speech? 
You ever remember saying things we wish we could take back? Hurtful, angry, resentful, gossipy, flattering words. How do we change those words? I must go to the root. I must go to the heart. Have you guys seen, you guys have seen a ventriloquist before, right? This guy or lady sits on a, a chair and they've got this, this dummy in their, their lap. Now about you, I'm somewhat intrigued seeing that ventriloquist and I'm in this dummy, but I'm also a little creeped out when I see that, that, that dummy kind of talking there. And it's always kind of in a sarcastic tone and, you know, put downs and kind of things. It's kind of funny and, and all that. And you might kind of like be thinking, uh, I'm going to wring that dummy's neck, right? I want to go give him a few slaps. You know, I don't like what he's saying. But you know what? You can punch that dummy in the nose and that's not the root of the issue. It's the guy that's sitting down there controlling the lever and, you know, speaking these words out of the, the lips that aren't moving. That's the source. But what do we do? We, we do all this behavior modification. We slap the dummy in our life, right? We're not, we're, we're just looking at what's coming out, but we're not going down to the source, where those words are really coming from. And we end up slapping the dummy and not talking to the one controlling it, not, not addressing that. So as believers, we often try these behavior modification techniques, just working on the outside without addressing the inside. And I'll just, just to give you some examples here, you know, in the wisdom of the internet, you can find all kinds of advice for things that uh, is not biblical. And here's some, how to swear less. Here's, but I want, but you know, as we look at these, just think about you know, do I focus too much on just my behaviors rather than what's really motivating those behaviors? Am I working on more of polishing up the outside of my life rather than getting to the heart of the matter? How to swear less. First, ask a friend for help. Well, that seems reasonable, right? It says in this article, we're often blind to our own bad habits, so you may want to enlist a friend, a spouse, a family member to hold you accountable. Anytime you let a curse word fly, have them pointed out to you. You could clap or call out a code word or make a sound anytime you utter a profanity. What kind of code word would you use? <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, oh, you should, as your friend's watching, it's like, oh, it's like, oh, yeah, sorry. And the more you start to recognize your patterns of speech, the easier it will be to change them. Here's the second advice. Find some replacement words, okay? Consider this a fun challenge to boost your vocabulary. Sure, you could say fudge or frick instead of the other word, but you don't have to limit your speech to such unimaginative uh, niceties. And they got some really weird recommendations here. What in thunderation? Or great horn spoon? Or well, dad sizzle it? Okay. And the more ridiculous you sound, the more incentive you'll have for nixing your need to swear altogether. Okay? Behavior modification. Three, pretend like your grandma is listening. Now, there might be some wisdom in this one. <laughs> of course, some of the sassier grandmas, it says here, swear like sailors. So this trick might not work for you. But still, it's helpful to think of someone you wouldn't want to offend with your potty mouth, whether it's your stern aunt a pastor, or the kids in your family. 
So the next time you're about to swear at the referee on your TV screen, picture this person sitting next to you on your couch. Behavior modification, not getting to the root, right? We're just talking about cleaning up the outside without the inside here. Four, train your brain to think differently. Well, that got someone's attention here. <laughs> Say the preferred word out loud. And over time, these exercises will train you to think and act differently. This is according to what they call here the Cuss Control Academy, whatever that is. And number five, get out the old-fashioned swear jar. All right? This tried and true method works because it hits us right where it hurts, in the wallet. Anytime you swear, get out a crisp $1 bill and stick it in the jar. And after reaching your goal, you can, you can use that money to buy yourself a nice reward. Alternatively, if you're more motivated by punishments than rewards, you could promise to give that, many, that money to your least fiscally responsible friend. So uh, if you see someone in great debt at LU, you, know, you might want to get friends with them as you're trying to control your tongue, and you can help pay their education. No. No, no, no. What is this? This is, this is all a, a, a soap-in-the-mouth kind of mentality, right? Yeah, I can understand that growing up, and you're training a child in the way he should go, but as, as believers that are older and where we want to mature in the faith and want to please God in our life, this is all, all these how-to-swear-less techniques, this is all slap-the-dummy stuff, right? This is not getting to the source, the heart of the matter that Jesus identified in that, that passage we just read of Matthew. Developing a God-honoring tongue cannot be about speech therapy. Remember, the tongue is untamable. We need the power of the Spirit. We need God's methods. We need God's ways. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And it's not these worldly, secular behavior modification techniques. Jesus tells us we need something deeper than the surface treatment, we need heart surgery. Lasting, real, fruitful, God-honoring change requires more than window dressing. Righteous words, get this, righteous words are not just about saying the right things. It's about being the right person. It's a pursuit. God wants you. He wants all of you. And the sin that we have in our hearts we want to protect, we want to hold, we want to cherish, we want to idolize them, we, want, we don't want to relinquish them. And to the extent that we let go of those, the more righteous our speech, the more God on our, our speech will be. So sinners need new hearts. Believers need transformed hearts. This brings the lasting God-glorifying change that brings honor to him. And if we need heart change, we've got good news. This is what God specializes in. This is why Christ came. This is the new covenant promise here in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. God promises, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you And I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Well, we have the Spirit of God. This is the promised covenant. It's the promised gift of the Spirit. 
This isn't just gutting out behavior modification. Yes, there is work in the Christian life, and there is holy sweat to be godly. But it's all fueled by the Holy Spirit when we do it biblically, God's way. And that must go back to the heart. It must. So, as we dig a little deeper into this heart thing, let's see how it relates to my speech. Look what Paul Tripp says here. Word problems are always related to heart problems. Word problems are always related to heart problems. Stated a little bit differently, the sinfulness of my heart is always the source of the sinfulness of my speech. The heart. The heart. What are we talking about here? The heart. Well, the heart, many of you heard this, it's the control center, right? It's, it's what runs the show in your life. It's the innermost center of a man. It's our intellect, our passions, our motives. It's the seat of our desires and ambitions. It's the heart that motivates and directs our outward behaviors. Your heart is the real you. Solomon attests to the importance of the heart's condition when he says this in Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart, your motives, your life, your passions, your desires, your intellect, keep all that, watch over that, guard that with all vigilance. Why? For from it flow the springs of life. It's your life. It's what comes out. It's who you are. The condition of your heart comes out in your life. Keep your heart. We guard the heart and care for it. What we do and say is determined by our heart's condition. So with that, I want you to turn to another passage where we'll camp out the rest of our time. Go to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3, where we're going to be looking at what James has to say about what comes out in our life and tracing it back to something specific in our hearts to help us try to diagnose, okay, why am I saying the things I'm saying? Why am I doing the things I'm doing? And James helps us get back to the heart of the matter. In other words, so that we're just not putting Band-Aids on our sins, but taking it back to what, why I'm sinning in the first place. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He says this, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So I'd like to make several points here to kind of flesh out this verse, get our understanding of it. Let's look at some lessons from this where we're drawing out the heart of the matter in our speech, okay? And the first one's this. You'll see this. There's an inseparable connection between the desires of my inward heart and my outward behavior. And I'm emphasizing desires here because that's what James does here. Look at the question in verse 1. What causes quarrels 
what causes fights among you, right? What, what's the reason for all this ugly stuff coming out? The quarreling, the fighting, the, the cross words, the hurtful words, the hurtful actions, the fighting, the stress, the difficulty, the disagreements that just end up in a very sinful outward way in word and action. And he gives the answer verse clearly in the rest of verse 1. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? What's the culprit for this outward ugliness in word and action? This angry behavior. It's not the circumstances that we're all fussing about. It's actually coming from my desires within. You can look at it like this. You'll see my fancy artwork. <laughs> um, adapted this from a faith biblical counseling ministry uh, training guy, but I actually improved the graphics here, believe it or not, but <laughs> my contribution. Um, the desires of my inward heart, whether they're good or bad, will invariably result in my outward behavior in action and speech. Emphasis here, desires of my inward heart lead to the outward behavior in my action and speech. Now notice what's going on here in the heart. These are passions and desires at work inside you. And James uses several words to describe these desires. If you look there in the passage, he tries to make his point as clear as possible. Verse 1, these are passions or your translation of scriptures may say pleasures that are at war within you. And these are talking about pleasures or desires for pleasures. It's experiencing pleasure for any reason and speaks of gratification, joint enjoyment. You look at the start of verse 2 there. It says you desire and do not have. You desire, right, and do not have, so you murder. This desire or lust, it might say, and do not have, it's, it's to fix the, your, your desire upon something. It's a it's a strong word for desire here, to, to set your heart on something, to long for it, to lust after it. In other words, I really, really, really want this strong desire. At the end of verse 2, you see, again, words for desire. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This is just, again, it's a strong word for desire, desiring something earnestly. So in the context here, we are looking at words of desire and pleasure that have a, have a negative connotation to them. They're self-centered. They're self-serving. But I'll have to make it very clear here. Let's realize that desire or pleasure in and of itself is not inherently sinful. And we can get off on the wrong track here if we think if I have enjoyment, I'm sinning. Okay? We'll get down to how that desire can turn into sinning here in a moment. But desire itself is not the issue. The passage here is not saying that all pleasure is sinful. It's not saying to live a holy life, I must deny myself of all pleasure and repent of all, any and all enjoyment. It's not saying that all comforts and relaxation are, are self-centered and sinful. That's not what the context is saying here. What is it saying? Let's go to point number two. It's saying that my desires are fighting for control in the battlefield of my heart. There's a war going on with these desires, okay? 
You look at verse, the end of verse 1. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So here we get some clarification regarding these desires. How do they get out of hand? Well, there's a war going on. Remember Romans chapter 7 where Paul's talking about, man, the good I want to do, I can't do. And he, you know, my, my desires, I want to do these things, and yet there's this war going on, and this tugging me in a different direction. We, we understand that battle that goes on, right? This, this spiritual battle for this desire to do what was right, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing, as Paul said in Romans 7, 18 through 20. So you got these, 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 these wars participants defined here. When we yield to sinful self-centered desires, we get sinful self-centered speech. When we yield ourselves to righteous God-honoring desires, it leads to pleasing and good speech. And we'll get more of this here in observation number three. I can discern the legitimacy of my desire from how I pursue its fulfillment or my response when I don't get it. That's how you can test where your desires are at and whether or not they're sinful or good. You can go back and um, ask yourself several questions here. How do I know if my desire has become a wrong desire or a sinful, self-centered, self-seeking, not God-honoring desire? Ask yourself three questions. First, what is it I'm desiring or wanting? What's the outcome I'm looking for? What is it something I desire? Again, that, that can be a good desire. I want straight A's this semester. That's a good desire. Go for it. Mm, until that becomes... Am I willing to sin to fulfill this desire? Ah, looking at the paper next door there on the, uh, uh, the desk next to me, right? Or any other number of ways we kind of circumvent the system to get that grade that would be unright. Am I willing to sin to get that good desire for those straight A's? Or do I respond sinfully when this desire is unfulfilled? Man, I'm going to torch this professor when he gets his rating, right? <laughs> he, he'll never come back here to teach again after the administration hears what I have to say about this, this, this professor. And uh, this is when the ugly comes out. This is when we start seeing, wow, have I taken my desire to a point where I'm now sinning to achieve it, sinning to preserve it, sinning to see it fulfilled? That's when you see whether your desire is legitimate or sinful or not. And really, this line of questions really helps identify something here we call idols of the heart. Idols of the heart. Uh, when Brad Bigney was here doing the Truth and Light Conference last year, and boy, Truth and Light Conference is coming up again here at Timberlake. Got some great speakers coming in March. I would so encourage you to be a part of that. Serve there, participate. But Brad Bigney had this to say as he was talking about idols of the heart. An idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. These can oftentimes be good things. I came to know Christ in, my, in God's working in my life when the gospel was shared with me, when I gave up the idol of track and cross country. And if you're not a running kind of person, you're like, eh, 
So what? But just think of something important in your life that your life is just wrapped up around. It's your identity, right? And that was me. That was my idol. I didn't know that as an unbeliever, but man, I read The Pursuit of Holiness and Jerry Bridges, and I found out, man, to be holy, it needs to be all about God, not about me. And I started to find out my life revolved around that and, and succeeding there rather than my identity being in Christ. And eventually, through the truth of the gospel and those things, I, I repented of that. And for me, it meant giving up the track spikes. I hung them up because that was more important to me than God was. My brother kept running. He, kept, he set school records. He, he, he did great. Believer, walking, babe. It was wonderful. That was great. But for me, it was sin because I loved it too much. And yeah, I can go out there and run some more now. I've gotten past that. Now my knees just won't let me, right? Uh, what are your idols? What are those things that are so important in your life that you'll do anything to protect them? And if you are, if you're in that state, and we all are, we all have these idols. It will come out in how you protect or preserve that desire. Okay? Idols of the heart. These are the root sins. These are the sins behind the sin. In other words, why did I say that? So ugly, so, so bad, so hateful. Do I need to confess that sin? Yes. But that's, that's the outward sin. You need to trace that back to why did I say something that way? What desire, what did I want that I wasn't getting? And I'm sinning to get it or preserve it. We're taking it back to the heart. Now, we have this tendency when ugly comes out in our words and actions to blame them on circumstances, don't we? It's what's going on here. It's, my, it's these difficulties. It's these outside influences rather than taking it back to the inside. James is very clear here. It's not your circumstances. Stop blaming them. Put the finger on your heart. Consider this, how the same circumstances will yield completely different responses. Just look at this example. It's the wee hours of the morning, and you're sleeping peacefully in the Liberty dorm. And the fire alarm goes off. And everyone has to go out in the cold. Robes, fuzzy slippers, you know, you know how it goes. And you're all out there waiting for the fire truck to let, you know, come, let you out. And uh, everyone, there's masses of humanity out there just shivering, you can see the breath. And consider these responses. Same circumstances, but different responses. This first person says, oh, he just has an absolute hissy fit. Big test that you've been freaking out over all week, and you went to bed early, so you get up a few hours later. Here it is, 3 a.m., 3 a.m., and you're, you're planning to get up at 6. And under your breath, you have these choice words, and even though you're not saying them out loud, they're not very edifying. And out, what comes out in your mind is, I hate dorm life, I hate school, I hate life, and you just, why, God? Why, why, why? And the second person comes out and says, oh, wow, I get to see the one I've been dating again today. He lives on the floor below me, and there he is. And you walk over there, and you cherish every extra minute with your dreamboat, right? And you say, this is a God moment. Oh, oh, for a ring in the spring, right? One more step in that direction. And it's just, it's just beautiful. 
And you have a third person, and he, he or she says and prays, oh, oh, Lord, work in this person's heart that pulled that fire alarm. You know, there's those around here I see every day in my, my floor, and in fact, I probably know who pulled that alarm, and they're, not, they're just heading in the wrong direction in their life. They, they need heart change. Soften them. Save them. What are we doing here? We've got the same circumstances, but something different in their response is completely different, right? And it's all coming out what we desire in our heart. It's not the circumstances, right? It's, it's circumstances where the desires that we're holding on to or cherishing come out in either good or bad ways. Look what uh, Paul Tripp says here. We go to our words. Our words are shaped by the dream that resides in our hearts. Our response to circumstances, difficult or good, right? The circumstances aren't the root issue. It's the dream in our hearts. It's what we're cherishing. It's what we want. We need to identify the sin behind the sin. Why did I say what I said? Why did I say what I said in such a horrible manner? Why do I gravitate and give in to telling and hearing gossip? Why can't I control swearing in a fit of anger? Why do I complain and whine and vent when faced with less than an ideal situation? Why do I pour on flattering words of insincere praise to someone? You need to ask yourself, what am I desiring so much that I will sin to get it, sin to keep it, or sin when I'm not or I'm being denied of it? I don't get it. Our tongues tattle on our hearts. When you learn to address the heart, you'll address the tongue and the actions that go with it. And as we kind of come towards the the home stretch here, this, this lesson, look at this here. Sinful desires, here specifically we see sinful desires in this graphic, a, a desire to please self, Sinful desires will lead to disobedient, sinful words and actions like we've been talking about in unfavorable circumstances. And what does this lead to? Invariably, feelings, emotions of anger, anxiety, depression. Remember, it talks about in James 4 here, fights and quarrels. There's a lot of difficulty, a lot of stress, uh, uh, a lot of consternation, depression. You know, as believers, we learn not to be feeling-oriented in how we conduct our lives, but you cannot ignore your feelings. We have to interpret them. We have to filter them through Scripture. So, hey, if you're feeling anger, resentment, animosity, anxiety, depression today, take it back to your behavior. Look at what I'm saying. Look what I'm doing. Why am I saying those things? Why am I doing those things? But don't stop there. You have to take it back to what do you desire so much in your heart that you're willing to sin to get it or keep it. Again, going back the other way, that desire leads to unrighteous actions. And the sinful life is hard. It leads to emotions that aren't good. We need a reorientation of our life. The answer is, is living a pleasing life, striving to be pleasing to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. It has to be about reorientation. 
We need transformation. This is what we do when we get to church, right? This is what we do when we're in boundless. It's all about changing hearts. It's a step-by-step progress of relinquishing more of our desires to make them God's desires and not our own. And when those circumstances come where I don't get what I want, we say, hey, blessed be the name of the Lord who gives and takes away. It's a much different response, isn't it? When it's all about God, instead of all being about me. And that's hard work. We have to identify those idols that we're trying to preserve sinfully and relinquish those to God to make him the main actor in our life, the main theme of our life. It's about pleasing him. So if you look at a good desire in this graphic to please God, that leads to invariably behavior that's obedient, God-honoring, and words and actions. It will come out in our speech. We will face unfortunate circumstances, and it's bristling against us, and it's hard for us. But as we relinquish that to the Lord and ask God to work through that, what good God-honoring speech comes out, and what? Would that come blessing? The emotions of joy and happiness and peace. We can live peaceable lives even when there's great affliction. This doesn't mean it's easy. This isn't a trial-free life. This doesn't mean I don't have problems. But we can ride through that in the storm and the refiner's fire when we have that idea is it's all about pleasing Christ here and not my plans, not my desires. Parting instructions. We've got to be quick here. Parting instructions for addressing your heart. Pray for God to reveal the idols of your heart. Lord, what is it that I cherish so much that I'm willing to sin for it and to keep it? Trust God's words to identify ruling desires. You know, the word of God is sharper and active than a double-edged sword, right? It, it, it defines things and cuts up the heart. And what does it do there? It judges the intentions of the heart, is what it says. It, do, it judges my intentions. It's talking about the heart. It judges it. It gives me clarity. We pray to God to use his word to put the spotlight on where it needs to be. Evaluate your choice of words and difficulties. Don't just say it and go on, or just say it and confess it, which you should. When, you, when you're sinning sinfully, when you're, when you're saying words sinfully and words in action, go back to the source. Take it back. Evaluate. Loosen your grip on idolatrous desires and tighten your grip on Christ. Make it all about him. And then give the green light for others to speak into your life. Humble yourself and allow others to speak into your life when they see those things coming out that show a heart that isn't on God's program but on your own. I hope those things are helpful to you. Next week when we get together, we're going to be looking at specific words, sinful words, sins of the tongue, and tracing them back to idolatrous desires and trying to make that help you make that connection okay god bless you guys the rest of the day enjoy the church service and have a great thanksgiving all right love you all have a good day